If you have your Bibles, you can actually turn with me in them to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Uh, we, we won't be there for a little bit. Um, I'm going to reference some other passages. It won't be till the end that we're in Hebrews. So, of course, if you want to turn along with me to the other passages, you are certainly um, free to do so um, today. Uh, I, I don't anticipate this necessarily being a very long sermon. As I said last week before I preached that one, I found that this sermon and that sermon were kind of mashed together. And um, uh, I, in one sense, it created one, one sermon better than two. However, um, in topic, it, it didn't really mesh. So split it into two, neither one being particularly uh, uh, long. Uh, the title of it is simply For the God Who Has Everything. Uh, this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving, and it's one of the most important holidays on the church calendar. I was talking just before the service about the fact, uh, and I've, talked, I, I've said this to many people over the course of this last couple of weeks, that I think that in many ways Thanksgiving has become the, the purest of the Christian holidays uh, in that it's the one that is, is least encumbered by, um, by a, 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 the the confusion of a secular holiday merging with a, a religious holiday. Um, that's not to say that it has to be less encumbered. We recognize that um, this week is actually a great encumbrance if we're not careful. However, from a purely um, Thanksgiving standpoint, uh, society has been very quick to leave Thanksgiving behind, right? And to replace it with uh, the, the great uh, holiday of Black Friday. And in that, we, we find that um, Thanksgiving has been kind of left alone now, and it's been given back to the church. Whereas Christmas and even Easter still have very much so uh, a secular bent to it, um, Thanksgiving has been uh, totally relegated to the church and the culture has fled the entire opposite direction from a day of thankfulness to a day of intemperance, uh, from a day of, of um, contentment to a day of absolutely opposite uh, of indulgence, right? Uh, and gearing up for a season of indulgence. And so as, as culture runs that direction, we get to run this direction and it adds a clarity to the day. So I have come to particularly appreciate the season of Thanksgiving as it relates to the opportunity that we have, even in the culture's focus, to see so clearly the value and the benefit of it in that Thanksgiving is, in fact, the very essence of the Christian life. Now, last week we talked about Thanksgiving in difficulty, right? We thought through Thanksgiving as a form of trust, gratitude as trust, that one of the, the ways that we can reflect trust to the Lord in hard days, in confusing days, in difficult days, in vulnerable days, is actually to lift up to the Lord our praises, our gratitude, and our thanksgiving. Uh, this week is uh, for, for the other end, right? In any given time, ironically, the same David that wrote Psalm 63 that we thought through last week, the same David who in that day was fleeing from his son, presumably Absalom, is uh, the, the inference that I made there, and I gave you all the reasons why I thought that, the, the same David who was fleeing from his son, wondering if he was ever going to be back in Jerusalem, uh, deeply vulnerable on that day, that same David, we're going to think through a different time, a different season of life today. And maybe you're in the season of life of David fleeing from Saul or of David fleeing from Absalom. Maybe you're in a season of life of vulnerability and of unknowns and of difficulties. Uh, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're in the season of life that we find in our passage today. A season of life that is very, very different and that is a, a little bit more natural as it relates to the eyes or the mindset of Thanksgiving. So 
I read for you this morning, a beginning in 1 Chronicles 17. And the Bible says this in verse 1. Now it came to pass, as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in an house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. So many of you know the context here. David has been through quite a journey by the time of 1 Chronicles 17. God will summarize that journey here coming up in a few verses. But the essence of this is that David is sitting in a house of cedars. He has built a house for himself in Jerusalem. He is at peace. The tribes have all united under his leadership. He is, uh, he, his enemies have fled before him. Uh, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and it is now in the, the tabernacle in Jerusalem where he has set up this, this new capital uh, for the nation of Israel, he having reigned first for seven years in Hebron, and, of course, Saul having uh, set up... Um, um, uh, in his own land and not in Jerusalem. So now we have this, this, this new situation and David is reflecting upon all that he has been given and he's sitting there in peace and in wellness and in comfort and he says, I am in this house of cedars, but the ark of the Lord, that's the presence of the Lord among them, is under curtains, is simply under a tent. And he has it in his heart in this moment to do something for God. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place before where things are well, where things have, have gone well. The Lord has obviously and clearly blessed. He has directed. Things are well. And in that wellness, you sit and you reflect upon all that you're seeing in your life and you say, God has done all this for me. What can I do for him? And that is not an easy question to answer, is it? What do you get for the God who has everything? And that's the idea behind the title this morning. What do you get for the God who has everything? So we're going to walk through First Corinthians, excuse me, First Chronicles 17 a little bit, and then we're going to go to a few other places and think through this idea, and then come to a conclusion, which of course David in the Psalms, as well as um, Paul in Hebrews, will help us think through together. So we continue in First Chronicles chapter 17, verses two through six. The Bible says this: Then Nathan said unto David. Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me an house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in an house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, and from one tabernacle to another, Wheresoever I walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have ye not built me an house of cedars? So God responds to David here by saying, No, you, David may not build for me a house. I never asked for a house. Did I ever speak to any of the judges and say, Build me a house of cedars when I've moved from tent to tent throughout these years? And so he, he says that he is unwilling to have David do this, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a moment. But what's so fascinating about this is David is sitting there. He's trying to find something to do for the Lord. He says, I can build for the Lord a house. God says, I, I, I don't want you to build me a house, and I never asked for a house. But what is fascinating is God is going to take this situation whereby David has sought to do something for the Lord and God is going to turn it into another opportunity to instead 
bless David, that God is going to regard the heart of David to bless the Lord, and it's going to become another opportunity for the Lord to bless him. So here it is that God summarizes all that he has done for David, acknowledging all the reasons why it might be that David would in fact feel this desire to build a house. Look in verses 7 through 10 with me. God says, Now therefore thus shalt thou say unto my servant David. So God is speaking to Nathan. Nathan is the one who initially said, what, uh, Whatever you have in your heart, do it for the Lord. Nathan goes away. God comes to Nathan says, Nathan, that's not the right thing. That's not what I want. I don't want him to build me a house. Uh, tell David that I've never asked for a house. I've never asked for a house of cedars, but then tell him this. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldst be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth." So he reviews all of the things that he has done for David, taking him from simply being a shepherd, elevating him to being a king, causing all of his enemies to flee before him, making him one of the great kings of the earth. Verse 9, Also I will ordain a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them anymore as at the beginning. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house. So God explains all that he's done for David. And then he says, and by the way, I'm not done yet. He says, I'm going to establish my people, Israel. I'm going to establish their place. I'm going to unite. I, I've united them under the banner. I'm going to protect the nation and he says, furthermore, when you have asked to build me a house, I am going to build for you a house. Now, David's sitting in a house of cedars, right? The idea here is not that God's going to build for him another physical house. What we find is that what God is saying is that he's going to build for David a lineage. He's going to build for David a legacy that the, that the line of David will no longer fail to be on the throne in Jerusalem. So we can trace these things through David's life. God's faithfulness in response to David's faith and obedience. God's loving hand of grace upon David. The pleasure that God has shown in David's desire to trust him, to wait on him. And so God determines to bless both David and to bless and establish the nation for David's sake. And God's next words are, are all the more fascinating to me. He says in verses 11 through 14, and it shall come to pass when thy days shall be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him that was before thee, that being Saul. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever." And, this throne, and his throne shall be established forevermore. So in response to David's desire to build a house, notice what just happened here. David sits in this house of cedars. He says, I want to do something for God. How about I build a house for the ark? Nathan comes and says, go ahead. But then God replies to Nathan and says, nope, that's not what I want. Go tell David these things. I raised you up. 
I gave you the kingdom. I united the kingdom under you, but I'm not done yet. I'm going to bless you all the more. I'm going to establish the kingdom. I'm going to protect the kingdom. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to cause your sons to continue to have this right to rule. I am going to establish them and your son is going to build for me a house. Think through that with me. God says, I never asked for a house. God says, I'm not going to let you build for me a house. And the reason why, David acknowledges a little bit later in 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, uh, David says this, God said unto me, thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. So the reason why God was unwilling to give this to David is because David was a man whose kingdom, whose reign was associated with conquering, with war. And David desired, uh, God desired that his house be associated with peace. And so Solomon would be the one to build that house. David's son would be the one to build that house. And God would give David's son a uniquely peaceful time, a uniquely prosperous time, so that the, the house would be associated with the reign of Solomon and the character of Solomon's reign and not necessarily the character of David's reign. So God says, I will build for you a house and then as I build for you a house, David, your son will build for me a house. The thing that runs through my mind is this. Now we know that God is sovereign and God knew how this was going to play out. God is the one who ordained the tabernacle, right? God is the one who ordained those curtains. God is the one who ordained it to be so. God never asked in any of the judges, he says, I never once went to any of the judges and says, why have you not built for me an house? So the question that comes to mind is, was God's willingness to even have David's son build that house simply for David's sake? God responding to the love that David had for him, it's kind of like a child. How does a child bless their parents? Have you ever been in that situation where a child wants to give a gift to you and they come up and maybe it's, it's, it's uh, your child, mom or dad, uh, daddy, I, I, I want to I wanna give you a gift, okay? Can I have markers and can I have paper and can I have tape? And, and so you end up giving them everything that they need. You end up spending whatever money you need to spend so that they can give you a gift. That idea Right? Where David says, I want to do something for the Lord. And, and, and the Lord says, I regard that. I never asked for a house. But I regard that. So much so that I'm going to let your son build that thing for me. And that's such an amazing concept. That the Lord would do such a thing. He would condescend in such a way to allow us to bless him. And indeed the Lord does allow us to do so. At the end of this interaction into which David entered with the mind to give something back to God for all that God had done for him, God actually refused to receive the house at David's hand, but then he allowed David's son to build that house and then promised that that son would actually be the symbol of a perpetual kingdom that God would give to David. And that sounds just like our God, doesn't it? David is actually overwhelmed by this. And he goes into a psalm of praise whereby he recognizes how 
how absolutely unworthy. The Bible says, David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is mine house that thou hast brought me hither to? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God. For thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant. O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so he continues to praise the Lord and desire that the Lord would establish his promises as the Lord would be blessed forevermore. But I want to take you to another expression. In Psalm 50, Asaph is writing, and Asaph speaks to the idea of praise. And in Psalm 50, verse 7, notice what the scriptures tell us. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house nor he goats out of thy folds for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Asaph contemplates a very similar sort of problem that we contemplate this morning that David contemplated in his day. David sits in his house of cedars and he says, what can I give to the Lord for all he has given to me? He even attempts to do so with this idea of a house. And it turns out that as he attempts to build for David this house, it ends up simply being more opportunity for God to build David a house and for God then to, in his, in his mercy, give David the opportunity to build a house through his son Solomon. So that as David walks away, he walks away blessed, he walks away humbled, he walks away praising the Lord, but perhaps also walked away with a feeling of, well then how do I bless God? <laughs> how do I do anything for God? What can I do for the God who has everything? Asaph contemplates a similar idea here. All the beasts of the field are the Lord's. If he were hungry, he would not tell us. The world is his. The fullness is his. He will not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the, the, the blood of goats. He does not need these sacrifices and these offerings that as, as the nation of Israel would bring before, these thing, before him these things to the altar, uh, the Lord does not need these things. And in the same way, as we think through, what do I give to a God who has everything? This is the week of Thanksgiving. How can I show the appreciation to the Lord for all that he has done for me? God doesn't need our goats. He doesn't need our rams. He doesn't even need our actions. If I choose not to do what God needs done in the world, he'll send someone else to do it. It's not that I'm someone special. If God was able to get his message through by a donkey in Balaam's day, he certainly doesn't need this guy up here behind this pulpit to do his work. There's no cause to imagine, imagine that he needs my particular skills or any other skill for that matter. He chooses to use us. We thank the Lord for that. But he doesn't have to use us. 
So that we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. As I think through the idea of giving to the Lord, as I think through uh, the, 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 the time and the effort that I put into ministering to him, it is out of the love that I have for him. And yet, as I, as I think upon it, it, it is not but my reasonable service that I would do so. It is not but my reasonable service that I would give back to the Lord a portion of what he's given to me. It is not but my reasonable service that I would invest my life into the Lord who has given his life for me. So how do I actually give something to God? And we actually stopped right before the answer in Psalm 50. God spoke in Psalm 50. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goat out of thy folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the flesh of goats? Then God tells us what it is we can do to show him our gratitude. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. This is fascinating. God says, I don't need your bulls, I don't need your calves, I don't need your money, I don't need your abilities. Then what can I offer to God? What do I give to a God who has everything? What can I offer to God that actually only I can offer to him? That comes from me that only I can give him that can come from no other in the exact way it can come from me. We see two things in these verses. Thanksgiving and trust. Now, trust is what we talked about last week. Gratitude is trust. This week we talk about the thanksgiving aspect. Offer unto God thanksgiving and call upon him in the, name of tr uh, in the day of trouble. This is what I can offer to God that is uniquely mine. This is what God asks of me. This is what God has asked for. God accepts your service and your obedience. Of course he does. God accepted David's desire in that day to build a house through his son. It ended up being worked out. Of course he did. He turned that into more blessing toward David. God receives your thanksgiving and your trust. Whereas my my obedience and my service, these are things that are my reasonable service, Romans 12, 1 tells me. But my thanksgiving and my trust, these are gifts that you can actually give to the Lord. So you think back to that parent analogy. And your child wants to give you something, and so he takes your paper and your pencils and, and, and your tape and your glue and your glitter, and he makes a mess in your house to bring to you that thing that he wants to give you to show you how much he's thankful and love you. And, and you regard it as such and you recognize it as such and yet you also recognize that in doing so, you have actually, you have payrolled, not just with your money, but with your future labor, all that they wanted to do for you. And that's kind of how it is with God, right? That's kind of what David was doing with God in a sense as, as God recognizes there's really nothing that David can do for God in that sense. But what happens when your child comes up and thanks you, shows gratitude. What happens when your child 
acknowledges, and not just a child thing, right? If you've ever worked in the service industry and someone comes up and genuinely thanks you, we all know what it is to actually receive a true blessing simply by someone acknowledging us. Simply by someone taking the time to do that thing which is free but which we often don't think of. That thing which we often just allow to pass by because if things are going well, then we don't have any reason to, to mention it. It's only when things are going wrong that we have, we have cause to mention. Right? On our day, in our day of trouble, we have, we have great cause to come to the Lord. But what about in our day of plenty? On that day of plenty, I can offer God something that is unique. Something that he will receive as truly a gift to him. Something which he get from me. And that's gratitude. And this makes my sermon today somewhat circular. How can I show God my gratitude for all that he's done to, to, for me? Well, I can show him gratitude, right? It's somewhat circular. It's very simple. I don't know that I've ever preached a simpler message. Just purely basic, simple. Do you thank God? Are you thankful to him? When we look at Psalm 50 and God says, I don't want your bulls and I don't want your goats and I don't want your sacrifice and I don't want your offerings. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. How do you give somebody like that anything? Thank him. That's what he asks for. All that we might think of to do for God, how often do we simply take the time to thank him for what he has done for me? Of all that we might say that we can do for God, how often does that translate into quiet trust in him? Thanksgiving is coming up this Thursday. And as I said before, it's a holiday that has been generally dismissed in culture, usurped by Black Friday, modified from a day of gratitude to a day of intemperance and indulgence. But we get to come together under a very different banner than the banner that is flown this, week, this next weekend, generally speaking. We get to come to, together still under that banner of gratitude, we come together on the first Sunday of every week to remember that we have a different culture. We live in a realm of the heavenly. And in this culture, thanksgiving is paramount. In the culture of the kingdom of God, thanksgiving is our currency. Thanksgiving is the way that we are able to give God something for all that he's given to me. And in that simplicity... I remark, but it's so little. Yes, but if it's what he wants, why am I balking at the fact that it seems so small? It's what he wants, Christian. So let's give him what he wants. We've seen it from Psalm 50. Let's look at it from one more passage of Scripture. I ask you to turn to Hebrews 13. That's where we, uh, we're, we're supposed to turn the beginning, and that's where we'll, we'll end today. Hebrews 13, verses 10 through 14. Bible says, We have an altar 
whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So Paul, uh, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. If you don't know why that is, go back to my Hebrews book sermon and I justify my, my thinking there. Um, Paul emphasizes here in Hebrews chapter 13 the unique distinction of the New Testament Christian connected to the symbolism of the Old Testament tabernacle. We have an altar, Paul says, that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to, at which they have no right to eat. The idea being that, that we have something very different from the character of the Old Testament sacrifice. Therefore, we can come to that altar and we can eat at that altar whereby they cannot. Of course, not speaking of a physical altar here. Paul then describes the offering of the Day of Atonement when the beasts were bled and their bodies were taken outside of the camp to be burned. In contrast to being eaten by the priests at the altar itself. And the contrast is with our Day of Atonement. The day of atonement that was realized on the, with Jesus Christ on the finished work on the cross. That Jesus suffered without the gates for us. That on the day that Jesus was hung on the cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem on that mount called Calvary or Golgotha. On that day he became that, day of, that, 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 that atonement for us. He became our day of atonement. And then we are called by Paul here to go with him outside of the camp through the finished work of Christ, to bear his reproach. And in bearing his reproach, that's that Romans 12 idea of our reasonable service. That if he has done this thing for us, then we take up our cross and we follow him. We bear that reproach as the reasonable service of that which Jesus Christ has done for us. And we do so for this reason. It's the same reason that we just spoke of as it relates to our culture and thanksgiving. We do so because we have no continuing city here on this earth, Christian. We do not look for a continuing city on this earth. That is not what we long for. That is not what we plan for. We do not come here every Sunday to, to conspire together to wait for the day that we are going to be able to overthrow uh, whatever kingdom or government and be able to establish something new and unique, a utopia on this earth of our own. That is not what we seek for. We seek for a continuing city to come. Paul established that well in Hebrews chapter 11 as he talks about those in what we call the hall of faith, who sought for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And because of this uniqueness to our sacrificial system, a system that is not built upon the physical foundation of, of, of goats and of calves and of a physical altar in that sense, unto a physical kingdom though there is one of those coming. Because ours is built upon the promises of the life that is to come, of the promises of a heavenly home, of the promises of a new Jerusalem, we bear his reproach. We seek unto that kingdom. That is the kingdom of priority. That is the kingdom that we labor for. That is the kingdom that we work for. And as we labor for that and we work for that, that is our reasonable service. That is the thing that makes the most sense because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But then... Just as we connected to the idea last week in Psalm 63, that our perceptions, our feelings, our hopes, our anticipation is not rooted in the circumstances of this life, but in the continuing city of the life that is to come, 
We stand not in the circumstances of today, good or ill, but rather in the character of our God. Paul then says in verse 15 of Hebrews 13, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So as we stand outside of the gate with our Savior bearing his reproach, Paul says, then what do we offer back to the Lord? Bearing his reproach is the reasonable service of one who has received Christ's sacrifice. The Day of Atonement compels us as a reasonable service to bear his reproach. But then what? How do we give something back? What do we do then to thank the Lord? That's exactly it. We thank him. We actually thank him. We are compelled to offer a sacrifice of our own. Not a sacrifice of goats or of calves. God does not need those things. Every beast of the forest is his and the cattle on a thousand hills. But what can we offer to God? We can offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. And Paul specifies what that means. What that means is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God's name. So what do I give to a God who has everything? I can't bring a sacrifice. God does not need such a thing. But all the more so, even if I brought the sacrifice, the fact of the matter is Jesus has already been that sacrifice. Right? It's already done. I have nothing to offer my God that he cannot achieve in any other means except one thing. I can offer him with my lips thanksgiving. Thanksgiving can come out of my lips, the lips which God has created, the lips which God has sustained, the body which he's given to me, the mind which he's given to me. I can take everything that he's given to me and I can exercise my heart, my will, and my passion to thank him for it. And in doing so, I can give him something that no other person can give him in the exact same way. My thanksgivings. Even if you're uttering thanksgivings and I'm uttering thanksgivings on this day, your thanksgivings are not my thanksgivings. And every single person in here has the capacity to bring that exclusive and unique thing to the Lord. And this is the weak Christian. Now, we say thanksgiving is supposed to be all year round and that's, you know, true. Um, you know, we, we, we say things are true that we then try to impress, you know, I walk away saying I said something profound. Yes, we all know that thanksgiving is supposed to be every day of the year. But there's something right and good about a holiday, right? There's something right and good about a time of year where we get to bubble up, focus in on the opportunity to do this thing. And what better holiday for the Christian church than a holiday whereby we actually give to God the one thing that we're able to give to him that he's asked for. So this week, don't let that be taken away from you, Christian. Don't lose that under everything else that might be happening. Family, friends, good deals, all of the things that this week uh, uh, has, has come to be and represent fine, wonderful things, not bad things in and of themselves, unless they steal from you what you're supposed to give to God. Don't let that happen. 
on this Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, that's my exhortation to you, that when I ask, what can I offer my Savior and my God, the only question that biblically makes sense, the only question that's actually, the only answer to that that's given in the Bible, excuse me, is the sacrifice of praise continually, the fruit of my lips giving thanks to his name. And may that truth define our Thanksgiving this year. May this Thanksgiving be a Thanksgiving where we are deliberate in our intentional praise to him, not taking from him that thing which he regards most as it relates to us. And may through it, God truly receive something from us this week. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.